play the game. Everybody, play the game. I say that often. It's very applicable, works in a lot of different contexts. And of course, today it is momentous, it is huge. I am saying that because it's a big moment. This is a queen episode. Woo, yes. I'm back at it with my boys. But this is not a queen deep dive, per se. It's a kickoff. Remember, we wrapped up Queen's seventh album, Jazz, released in 1978. And I told you guys that the shift we were going to be making, the change, the newness, was going to be so radical, it was going to blow your mind. And the truth is, it took me a little longer to prepare for this because one, life happened, and I'm so sorry I was away for a little bit, but two, there's a lot to cover here. So much happening. The time frame of this album and its development and the release of singles in the album itself was quite spread out, which is an anomaly in Queen's catalog. But moreover, We're shifting from the 70s to the 80s, and with it, there's a big change in production. We have no Roy Thomas Baker. We have no Mike Stone. The guys, of course, still a heavy hand on the production side, but they're completely shifting gears here, and not just when it comes to the music. Visually, things are changing. The look of the boys is changing, except for maybe Brian. (laughs) He kind of always looks like Brian. He always has his big head of hair. He's still got his big head of hair. I love it for (laughs) it. I love it. Anyway, yes, a lot of stuff is happening. I had to do so much research here. I have so many quotes from the guys. Oh my goodness. I probably missed a ton of things. I'm probably going to forget to bring stuff up because I was thinking to myself, okay, I don't want to forget X, Y, Z, and I have my notes, but the truth is there's always something But today, ladies and gents, I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad you're here because we are talking Queen's eighth album released June 30th, 1980 in both the U.S. and the U.K. And I am talking none other than the game. Everybody play the game. First of all, this album was recorded in two different sessions. June through July of 1979, where several songs were knocked out, and then again, February through May of 1980. And you're probably scratching your head, why was there six months or so between these sessions? Well, we're going to talk about that. But this album was huge, guys. Let's recap a little bit. So we know the guys have had huge hits in the UK, in the US at this point, and in various other countries as well. We know they've seen success in the US with News of the World, especially. But this is a whole other level. This album takes the guys into stratospheric territory. They, I, okay, we're going to get into the details. But the game was massive for the guys. The success for them at this point was massive. This album was number one in the UK and the US. Also number one on the Argentina, Canadian, and Dutch charts. 
And guys, the US number one is huge because guess what? I'm just gonna say it now. I kind of wanted to save this for later until I got through the entire discography. But the thing is, the guys never hit number one again with an album in the US. They never did it again. This was the only time this happened. Huge. That's what I mean when I say this was monumental. And you guys, I want to go into band comments first. I have so many of these. And the coolest thing, I have something from everyone, even Mr. John Deacon, the shy, soft-spoken, well, usually soft-spoken. He, <laughs> he had zingers once in a while, but he, he kept to himself a lot. Didn't say as much as the other guys in any interview, but I do have one comment. I think it's one comment from even Mr. Deacon Disco Deaky. So very excited to get into these. Let's do it. With On the Record in 1982, Brian commented at length about this album, The Game. Quote, that was when we started trying to get outside what was normal for us. Plus, we had a new engineer in Mac and a new environment in Munich. Everything was different. We turned our whole studio technique around, in a sense, because Mac had come from a different background from us. It really helped a lot. There was less guitar on that album, but that's really not going to be the same forever. That was just an experiment. Unquote. It's interesting that he says that actually in 1982, but we'll talk about that some more later at that time. Now, regarding the use of synthesizers on the game, John Disco Deaky commented, quote, We wanted to experiment with all that new studio equipment. We had always been keen to try out anything new or different whilst recording. The ones we were using could duplicate all sorts of sounds and instruments. You could get a whole orchestra out of them at the touch of a button. Amazing. Unquote. In an 1980 interview with Sounds, Roger said about Freddie's new mustache. We talked about the newness. That was just one thing. He grew his mustache. Quote, it's funny how he got more press out of growing a mustache than he would have done by walking naked down Oxford Street, unquote. But Roger also spoke about the new synthesizer sounds on the game, saying, quote, I've been using them for a while now. It's my synth on the album, and I'm working on a solo album that incorporates them quite a lot, unquote. Roger was also quoted in Mark Blake's book, Is This the Real Life? speaking to the use of synths on the game. And he said, quote, I'm afraid that was my fault. I'd bought this Oberheim polyphonic synth. I showed it to Fred and immediately he was like, oh, this is good, dear. Unquote. In 1984, Brian talked with sounds about Queen's entire catalog to that point. And when it came to the sound and production on the game, he said, quote, everything we did on the game was different from the way we'd done it before. It was a fusion of our methods and his, Max, methods. There was some conflict. I had a lot of disputes with him over how we should record guitars. I suppose by that time, I wasn't even thinking about it. I just wanted to record it the way I always recorded it. 
But Max said, look, try my way. Eventually we did compromise and got the best of both worlds, unquote. In Mar del Plata, during the Glutton for Punishment tour in 81, Brian also said, quote, before the game, we used to focus on melodies and harmonies, but this time we had some ideas based on the rhythm and it worked. Now we look and sound different, unquote. And Freddie, while speaking about playing acoustic guitar live on stage for the first time, said, quote, I wrote Crazy Little Thing on guitar and played rhythm on the record. And it works really well because Brian gets to play all those lead guitar fills as well as his usual solo. I'm somewhat limited by the number of chords I know. I'm really just learning, but I hope to play more guitar in the future. Unquote. And I'll talk about this a little bit more as we get into performances and the tour the guys did for this and everything. But I want to go back to Brian talking about rhythm driving this album. Guys, previously, we had these elaborate albums, really heavy with lots of vocalizations, melodies, harmonies, wall-to-wall vocals from everyone, of course, but John. We don't get that so much anymore. Yes, there are bursts, brief moments that we'll experience going forward. But on this album, by and large, it is very stripped. It's very minimal. So stark compared to what we've had before, especially when you think about A Day at the Races or Queen 2, the overproduction the glamour, the opulence of some of the albums before it. We don't have that anymore. Yes, part of that is influence from the synthesizer edition. But part of that is simply an approach. And I suppose a natural lean to a different style. We've had a little bit of dance, a little bit of disco, a little bit of funk. With the previous two albums, even. Both News of the World and Jazz incorporated a little bit of that, and actually it was Roger that was driving that development previously. But here we're diving into it more. You know how Brian said this is more rhythm-driven? I think part of that isn't just a conscious decision of let's focus on the rhythms more and it's less about the melodies. No. When the guys went to Munich, Part of what happened, the natural infusion of being there was the nightlife. There was a particular place called the Sugar Shack that they would frequent when they would take breaks from the studio. It was a club. And they were obviously experiencing the atmosphere, the nightlife, and they were listening to the music there, which was much more club, pop, rhythm-driven. So I'm sure that was part of it. Freddie especially, and I think even John, were very inclined towards that particular sound as well, which is why it's going to continue to develop in further albums. But I'm sure that those experiences at the time greatly influenced what the guys did. And actually in some negative waves. I don't want to get too deep into that, but Brian being so forthcoming about things has talked about that, that I think I've read the quote, we all got into a little bit of emotional trouble in Munich. So they had a good time, but I think it affected them on a very deep, 
personal level as well. But obviously, just being in that atmosphere, being in that kind of place influenced what they were writing and how they approached it and how they recorded it. So it's all coming into this album, and it especially affects the album after the game, which we'll talk about at that point. But interesting things to think about as we go into the 80s here and as we go into this more rhythm-driven, funky, poppy rock record. Let's go into critics and fan sentiment. So at the time, critics heard this as Queen's complete abandonment of rock and full-on embrace of funk and pop or at least pop-infused rock, if you will. Rolling Stone wrote, quote, Queen have shifted their sights from heavy metal flash to stripped-down rock and roll. Maybe they realized that they'd come to a dead end, that it was time to ditch the cold, bombastic, eclectic system. (laughs) I cannot say that. Why can't I say that? I love the word eclectic. Eclecticism and overweening arrogance that made news of the world and jazz so offensive. Or maybe they just figured it'd be good to try fresh terrain, whatever the reasons. It's nice to hear a Queen album with songs, not anthems. The game is less obnoxious than Queen's last few outings, simply because it's harder to get annoyed with a group that's plugging away at bad rockabilly than with one blasting out crypto-Nazi marching tunes, unquote. Guys, they can't even compliment them without throwing in some shade. It's all right there. Rolling Stone were never kind to Queen, at least not until more recent years, not in retrospect. Now, the Washington Post was, unfortunately, similarly critical. Quote, the new decade finds Queen floundering for an identity. With the number of the faithful diminishing, Queen has used this album to throw some different styles against the wall to see what sticks. Not much does. After five years of unchallenging, dismal albums, this was supposed to be Queen's comeback. But no such luck. That's in your face, isn't it? That's at least more direct than Rolling Stone. Can't say it's at all satisfying, though, of course, as a mega Queen fan that I am, and I know you guys probably agree with me, overly critical, so harsh. Paul DeNoyer of NME was incredibly harsh on the game, writing, quote, what performer needs to get wrapped up in all that social emotional realism stuff when every chart screams out advice to the contrary? Give us the old razzle dazzle, anything but the truth, unquote. Now, ultimately, he alluded to the best being behind Queen. (sighs) Robbie Millar of Sounds, well, same old thing. Quote, the game is a colossal mountain of unmovable mediocrity. It is old and tired and bland and blinkered. It purrs with self-satisfaction. Unquote. But Robin Smith of Record Mirror gave the album kudos, writing... Quote, this album isn't exactly high camp queen either. Gone nearly forever are those halcyon over-the-top days of fruitcake harmonies. Nowadays, queen have cut down considerably on such ploys, but there's still enough left for their brand mark. The title track is couched in the grand style. 
Fred, high on lung power, while May is invited in for the odd guitar burst, and Taylor gets fondly engaged in his heavy stripper theme, drum work, unquote. I think what he's referring to is the very dry, deadened sound of the drums, which at the time, yes, echoed the trends of the club tracks. Stripper theme drum work. Jeez. He actually criticized a song that would go on to dominate. I didn't want to mention it specifically because I want to talk about that when I get to the song. You guys might even have an idea what it is. And I wonder if he regretted that statement later. It doesn't matter. Circus Magazine wrote a wonderful feature for the boys' latest writing, quote, who would have thought that nine long years and nine albums later, Queen would still be riding a wave of an equaled success? The band's new Electra album, The Game, is a logical extension of Queen's most recent direction, a blend of rockabilly with new wave overtones. Each track from The Game is refreshing, unquote. Ah, I love it. Contemporary sentiment is much more positive. Across the board, all music, Stephen Thomas Irwine, I've mentioned this guy before, wrote about the album's disco rock blends and how they, quote, turned away from rock and toward pop, unquote. And another statement here, quote, turning decidedly, decisively pop. And it's a grand state-of-the-art circa 1980 pop album that still stands as one of the band's most enjoyable records. And it's absolutely true. I can listen to the game so easily from start to finish, over and over and over. It is because it's poppier, because it's more accessible, because it has the more predictable framework of a conventional pop song. It just makes it more relaxing to listen to, easy to listen to. Yeah, it lacks the complexity of earlier albums. I miss that a lot. Yes, I miss 70s Queen here a lot. But you know what? I've been listening to this album nonstop this last week. Not all the time, but if I'm listening to something on my iPod, it's been that album for the most part this last week. And I've just let it cycle through over and over and over. And it's fun. It's catchy. It has some wonderful soul in it, actually. And it just hit me the other day how this album begins and ends. And I want to talk about that in more detail as I get to sort of the breakdown of the album itself. But before I do that, guys, I have so many fun facts about this album. I have so many things about the touring of this album. Oh my gosh, because it was packed. There were multiple different waves of tours different legs of tours that happened with the game. And it's interesting how it was broken down. So let's kick it off. This is, of course, the first Queen album with a synthesizer. Massive change. And it's the first one produced with German producer-engineer Reinhold Mack. It's also... The first Queen album since 1974's Sheer Heart Attack to feature a photo of the band. Mind blown. I actually didn't even think about that until the other day. And I was like, whoa. It's been years since we saw the guys on a cover. 
And we see them here. Leather jackets, black and white. Hair is a lot more polished, shorter. Sunglasses. They look really rough and tumble. But it's funny because the songs are that much more warm and accessible. So it feels kind of like this wonderful contrast, <laughs> this interesting juxtaposition of this hardcore looking group of guys. And yeah, the guys have always had kind of an edge, of course. There's always been an intensity there. Hello, Queen 2 cover. Freaked me out when I was a kid. Love it now. But yes, the guys look so tough. Arms crossed, hands on hips, looking into the camera like nobody's business. But the truth is the songs here are more fun and poppy and funky than we've ever had. And actually, there are two different versions of the iconic black and white album cover. Don't know if you knew that. The original LP sees Roger crossing his arms but the CD release shows a completely different image with Roger standing more behind Deke and Brian's hand on his hip. Those are the two most obvious differences. But actually, I prefer Freddie's pose on the version with Roger crossing his arms. And I think it's because Freddie looks a little bit more settled in and a little bit more confident. Just something I noticed when I was looking at them side by side the other day. I thought, I like this one with Freddie better. Anyway, that is an interesting little fact about the cover. This album includes a bonus track, a special spontaneous idea. It's a beautiful day recorded in April of 1980, the track It's a Beautiful Day. And that is the more recent release of this album that has the bonus tracks on it, by the way. Of course, not the original release. But this track, It's a Beautiful Day, was Freddie's thing, a little thing Freddie did on piano, an improvised piece that is very significant much later. And that's why I mentioned it, because you don't really hear it otherwise until much later. And we will talk about it Dives and dives and dives ahead. But moving on with more about this fabulous, the game, Mac engineered the album, which was recorded at Musicland Studios in Munich. First time the guys did this in the city of Munich. And when the guys went into the studio to make this, they had very vague ideas rather than these full-on songs written or prepared. And this was a totally different approach too. Right, They not only focused more on the rhythm, but they had these fragmented ideas as opposed to completely written pieces at the ready. So I think that's why we have at least one song on this record that was the result of a fabulous jam session. We're going to talk about it in just a few episodes. Oh my gosh, you guys. I can't wait to talk about that one. More about the game. Interestingly, because of the album's broken up recording sessions and the production, the first single from this was released about nine months before the album even dropped. It was released in 1979, the first single. And in between recording periods, the guys did their brief but very successful smaller venue crazy tour, 20 performances throughout the British Isles. And it was during this tour that Freddie started sporting shorter hair, a tie, and leather pants with kneecaps. 
It was also the first time Freddie played an acoustic guitar live on stage. And the reason he did that is because the song that was released before the album was Crazy Little Thing Called Love. It's also why they called it the Crazy Tour. Freddie played acoustic guitar, playing that song live on stage. That's why he talked about how he wasn't very good at it and he only knew like three chords. <laughs> but he was able to do it and do it well and pretty much own it, if I'm being honest. Now, during this tour, the crazy tour, Freddie would sometimes ride the shoulders of Superman or Darth Vader. And actually, that got that into the that got the band into a little bit of trouble because George Lucas's company got word of it. They actually had to pay to use the likeness of Darth Vader on tour. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh. So even now, even now in this moment, Freddie's vocal performance during the crazy tour is regarded as some of his best vocal work ever, ever. And as successful as the crazy tour was, and as much fun as the guys had, in Brian's own words, they thoroughly enjoyed it. It was such a bear to get the band into smaller venues. Queen's tour manager, Jerry Stickles, collapsed from exhaustion. He said, quote, the doctors told me to take it easy for a while, but none of them have been on the road with Queen, unquote. And Jerry went on to talk about how, yes, it was a huge challenge to get the guys booked into these venues, but he and his crew, he pulled it off very successfully. The promo video for Play the Game saw Freddie's famous mustache debut, and he also quit painting his nails. And fans flooded the band's offices with gifts of razors and bottles of black nail polish. <laughs> Boy, they missed it. They missed the old Freddie. I don't know if I would have gone that far, personally, if I'd been alive back then. But I think I would have, yeah. I think the transition would have been tough for me, at least at first. <laughs> the release of the game coincided with the boys kicking off the game tour simultaneously, which featured a new lighting rig called the Fly Swatter because of the way it moved and which would become their biggest tour yet. The guys would play this tour through half of 1980 and most of 1981, six legs for a grand total of 81 shows. And this was the first time the boys played South America with record-setting crowds of up to 300,000 people attending. Fun fact, my very favorite photo of the band is from the Sao Paulo performance in March of 1981. It's the photo taken from behind the guys. They're downstage at the end of the show and you can see the crowd with their hands in the air and the guys have their hands in the air and Roger is jumping in the air, arms and legs out like a starfish. That is my favorite photo. Mostly because you feel the energy in it. You can feel the crowd's energy in that shot. There's more than one shot from that moment, but I love that moment. I have it on a t-shirt. I have it on a shirt. I love that picture. Sao Paulo, wow. Those South America tours, you guys, were insane. I want to talk about that a little bit because I didn't make notes about this, but I've read about it so many times. I could go on and on about it. When the guys went to South America, 
they weren't prepared for what happened. So I actually stumbled across a document that was, I would assume, given to the guys before they made their way to South America. And it particularly noted things to not do to stay out of trouble when you were in South America. There were notes about being very careful about not only how much you drank in the bar, but what was said in the bar. Do not talk politics, et cetera. Don't end up in jail because you'll never get out. That You know, that sort of thing. Also, the guys traveled around with armored guards throughout a lot of this little stint in South America. They had machine guns with them, the guards, not the guys. And if I remember right, a particular guard that was talking to John said something about how he was qualified to do the job because he had killed like 200 people. I don't know. I read that in my Queen As It Began book, I think. But needless to say, their trip to South America was huge, very successful, very difficult to pull off because they had to work with various authorities and they had to get things in place. They had to get their gear. They had to get everything shipped. I can imagine there were a lot of issues with customs. You know, how do you even pull that off? You've never had a band. You've never had a performance like this in South America. And the guys did it. And it was hugely successful. The guy's success in South America was massive at this time, largely because of one song. And I will talk about that song more when I get to it. But I had to talk about South America because absolutely insane. Every single show on the North America tour leg sold out. It sold out. Also worth noting is Queen's Rock Montreal was officially the very last performance on this tour in November of 81. That performance was the last time the guys performed together as a foursome on stage before adding keyboardists or other supporting players. That's why I love it so much and that's why it's so important. More tour stuff. The guys did some shows in Mexico on this tour. It was towards the end. It was one of the last tour legs. And it was one of those things where, do we really want to do this? Yeah, let's go do it. Bands just never went to Mexico to play. And the guys went. (laughs) And it was not without issue. Major issues at the border. Because of visa problems, there was a concern that they wouldn't be able to get their stuff through inspection to even have it there for performances. While the guys were performing, fans threw things like batteries and food at them, but not because they didn't like it. It was actually because they loved it. It was an appreciative thing. But the guys were scared. (laughs) They managed to dodge the missiles that were thrown on stage, but It was a rowdy, crazy time being in Mexico. And actually, the guys didn't make any money from those shows because of the way the finances, the way the funding was set up for all of that. And if I remember right, when I read about this, some of the gear Queen's crew saw on the stages at these shows had other bands written on it like Earth, Wind, and Fire. And they quickly discovered that There was gear that was being stolen from these other acts who had come and gone from Mexico. So when it came time 
for them to leave. And they actually cut a few shows. They cut a few shows for lots of reasons, but one of them was simply because they'd had it. (laughs) There was too much that was going crazy. And the crew hustled to get all of Queen's gear because they owned it onto the trucks and out of the country before anything could be snatched. A lot of drama (laughs) happening down in Mexico and even in South America. Craziness. But the guys did it and they played it. And they kind of went, we're never going to do that again. But they did it. And by all accounts, the fans loved it. So it just goes to show how devoted the guys were to the fans. I'm sure that's the only reason they went. And despite all of the hiccups, despite the struggles, the challenges, they managed to give great performances. Now, the game. The album went straight to number one in the UK at its release with multiple chart-topping singles, one of which would go on to be the guy's biggest hit worldwide by a mile and only amplified the game's success by massively increasing record sales. The game's huge popularity put the guys at the top of many awards and polls list, including nominations for three Canadian Juno Awards, two being Best Album for the Game and Best Band. They received Best Band in the Dick Clark Awards and were up for two Grammys for Best Produced Album with the Game and Best Performance by a Group. Circus Magazine gave them top votes for Best Band and Best Live Show and Best Album for the Game. The guys were on such a streak, they landed in the Guinness Book of Records at the end of 1980 as the highest paid directors of a company, all thanks to tax-free royalties from jazz and live killers. By this point, Queen had sold over 45 million albums and 25 million singles worldwide. And we're just getting into the 80s, you guys. It's interesting that despite the disdain some fans had for Queen, once they transitioned into the new wave pop movement, the guys were higher than ever. And this speaks to the massive amount of new fans they gained because of what they did on this album. Crazy little thing called love. Another one bites the dust. Those two songs alone, I don't want to talk too much because I'm not in those dives yet, but those two songs alone catapulted these guys to new heights in countries they never knew were at all on their radar. In some cases, absolutely insane, the success the guys had with the game. In a lot of ways, this was their on top of the world moment. I've read a few statements, a few instances in which Brian himself has said that, that around this time, the guys were pretty much the band to be because they had this incredible transition out of the 70s away from that classic sound that was so hardcore, so rock and roll, so many fans loved it. And yes, they took a chance doing what they did with the game, more funk, more pop, lost some people, gained countless more. If I'd been alive back then, because you guys, I've seen lots of artists I love through transitions in real time. And there've been moments where an artist takes a turn and I go, oh, I'm not so sure about this. It's happened with some of my my most favorite artists. Ellie Goulding. Mariah Carey, 
Even Radiohead. <laughs> I know none of those artists are alike. None of those bands are alike. But that's the point is I like a lot of different artists, a lot of different bands, and they've all done these very interesting things in their careers. And sometimes it makes you go, what? And in a way, I always love it because I love when an artist pushes the boundaries. I love when they try something different. And honestly, if they're all about it, that's really all that matters. Even if it doesn't sell as well, if an artist loves what they're doing, that's all that should matter. I'm all about integrity. I'm all about being honest creatively. And if you're doing you, cannot argue with that. But as a personal listener, sometimes I just go, this is not my cup of tea and that's okay. Because I reflect back on it now and I'm like, okay, it brought the artist to where they are now, which sometimes they come full circle, they do something even more radical and it blows my mind. But I think if I'd been alive back then and I'd heard, I would have been all about 70s Queen. I would have been all about 70s Queen, Queen 2 forever, baby. When this happened, I think I would have been shocked. But because of my propensity, because of my affinity for synthesizers, atmospheric sounds and wide open, endless soundscapes and arpeggios and that sort of thing. I think eventually, if this hadn't struck me as awesome right out the gate, I think I would have really, really loved this because it's the guys and because they're so good at it, despite what some of the critics might have written, wrote. <laughs> Jeez. It took me about five or 10 seconds too long to realize that mistake. Anyway, despite what some of the critics wrote at the time, that Queen, that this was blasé, that they didn't own this new style, even though they could play it. I think the swagger, the attitude, the skill, all of it is here. We don't need to hear the guys go full on funk or pop to know they can play anything. And we know that because we've had rock, speed metal, heavy metal, rock opera, jazz, folk, funk, pop. Guys, it's endless. We've had a little bit of country twang. Yes, we've had a little bit of vaudeville or a lot of bit of vaudeville. We've had ballads galore. We've had everything. And the kitchen sink. Everything in the kitchen sink. We don't need the band to prove that they can play this. They can play it. And I think a lot of fans, even if they were surprised by this move, were on board with it. Because this is the poppiest, funkiest, danciest thing from Queen yet. With throwback rock and roll attitude. It's easily one of the guy's most enjoyable works from start to finish. Yeah, I can listen to this thing so many times over and have done so. This album has become, interestingly enough, in stark contrast to Queen 2, which I also love running to while I'm listening to, this is one of my favorite running soundtracks, the game. It's slick, it's stylish, it's fun, it's vibrant. And because it's a shorter track list... 10 songs as opposed to its predecessors, 13, the balance of compositions from each of the boys is more evenly distributed. 
Again, we get at least two songs from all four of our queens. And the songs feel cohesive and effortless. Even though we dive into different genres, yes, part of this is the boys trading off and layering on lead vocals in several tracks, which is a rarity we seldom get. It unifies the performance all the more. And because the guys have proven they can rock, roll, croon, jive, experiment, and warble with the best of them, it feels like the guys are having a good time as they play with that style and attitude. Yes, this feels different. We expect that. Synthesizer infusion takes the boys into instantly more, at the time, accessible territory. And as the sound evolves, so does the look. John was the first to embrace a tie on stage. And we see that more in this era across the board. Kind of sleek, kind of polished. The previous excessive flash of big hair, save Brian, of course, and the sparkling, sweeping, glittering costumes is toned down for something more minimal and sleek, modern, edgy. Freddie, of course, surprises the most with his mustache and the more macho, manly displays. There is almost no trace of previous sensitivity so present in his ballads, though he still exudes passion and intention. His vocals are aggressive and assertive on nearly every track on the game. There is less guitar, yes, but Brian still impresses and even surprises on a track without his beloved Red Special. John and Roger, always a low-end force, take their technique and their skill in new directions on the game, with John in particular providing extremely important career-defining moments. Ah, and the songs. Another one bites the dust. Coming soon, Dragon Attack. There's certainly a disco and funk edge to many a song on the game. And because it was obviously a conscious move by the band, it took many hardcore rock and roll queen fans by surprise. Ultimately, this is polished. It's more poised rock, teetering on the edge of pop, sparse, minimal, stark, but still elegant. With the game... Queen proves they don't need to go overboard to be fantastic at what they do. This is really the first time it feels like they've held back a lot with the layers of sound in almost every song. And I want to talk about what I suddenly realized the other day, and I don't know why I'm still struck by this. This album starts and stops with a ballad. Yeah kind of a rock power ballad, especially the ending number, but they're ballads. Isn't that surprising? That not only does it open with a radical shift in sound because of the synthesizer, but it's a ballad. Freddie croons, he swoons with us, to us, at us. (laughs) And we get that in the closing number too. It's quite delicate actually. Lovely, bright, encouraging. There's a lot of encouragement on the game. I feel like there's a lot of fun, encouragement, bright moments on the game. And I really do love it. When I first started listening to the game, 
when I first bought it and I really took it in, first of all, there were a couple of tracks that stuck out to me as absolutely stellar killer tracks that I cannot believe do not get more attention to this day. But I was struck by how polished it felt and sounded. And part of that, I'm sure, is this new approach with the production work, the engineering on the sound side of things. It's not just the way the guys are playing. It's not just the style. It's the production that Brian talked about. About how Mac, Reinhold Mac, took the guys in a different direction that was met with a little bit of frustration, especially on Brian's end, obviously, but obviously gave them new energy and new life. And what's interesting is this trend is going to continue and it's going to cause some shifting attitudes within the band. And I'll talk about that because that's an album or two later, but it kind of starts here. And as we start to go into the tracks of the game in detail, we're going to break some stuff down that is going to surprise you. And I cannot wait to talk about one song in particular, and I cannot wait to bust through these things with you guys. Every Queen Deep Dive ever. But that is the game. That is the kickoff for the game, ladies and gents. How long is this? Ah, another long one. Another one bites the dust, baby. <laughs> I love it when these are long, but I knew it would be all of these notes, all of this craziness about the doors. Can you believe that it took them two different sections to complete this album? And that they released Crazy Little Thing Called Love early on, way early on. And Freddie played on stage acoustic guitar for the first time. It's quite a treat, actually. If you've seen Live Aid, I'm sure you know. It's great to see Freddie on stage playing an acoustic guitar. It feels, it's just happy. I don't know. It's something about Freddie and that guitar because it's so different than Brian. And you can almost tell that Freddie is concentrating more. <laughs> it's like he's thinking, okay, I really got to nail this. But you know what? His delivery of the vocals never falters on Crazy Little Thing. He does that relaxed, laid-back thing so well. I don't want to get into specifics yet. I'll talk about it when I get to that dive. You guys know me. But that is the game. I'm so excited to be kicking it off with you guys. Into the 80s, we dive deep. We're never going back. I mourn the 70s behind us, but I'm excited about some of the fresh moments ahead of us. And we'll talk about all that and more until next time. Keep yourselves alive. I will be back again I'm going to be up front with you guys. I'm going to be straight with you. A big thing is happening in my life next week. And I honestly don't know how many more episodes I'm going to get in before I have to unplug for a little bit. So I hope you guys have a fabulous one. If for some reason I don't get to the first track of the game before I unplug, maybe I'll get on a roll and I'll get through two tracks. I'm going to make that a goal. Okay. Anyway. I'm going to say it again. Keep yourselves alive. I'll be back next time. Have a fantastic one. And play the game. Everybody, play the game. <laughs>